When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, don't look around, but you're in the bookcase again. Didn't know it, did you? But there you are, between the bookends, in the bookcase, with me, Charlie Gibson. And with me, Kate Gibson, in the bookcase. Your your (laughs) co-host for another edition of our podcast, and we welcome you back. The book we have today is written by a woman named Miret Sabat. It is called The History of a Difficult Child. And our interest in this book began with a joke. It was sent to us by the publisher. We were talking about it on the phone one day. Kate's husband, David, walked behind her and said, what are you guys talking about? And she said, a book called The History of a Difficult Child. And David said, oh, somebody's written your biography. And we we started (laughs) laughing and we thought, "Okay, with that, we'll read the book. And we did. And we both Came away loving it. Yeah, it turns out that this book has absolutely nothing to do with me, which is, you know, surprising. The title does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because I I was not the easiest child. But that being said, it is the history of a difficult child. And actually, it is a novel about a multi-generational family at a time of the Ethiopian socialist revolution. And it's a beautiful book. One of the things I think that surprised me the most is when you hear multi-generational drama during the socialist revolution in Ethiopia, the first thing that pops into your head is not, boy, I bet this book is going to be funny. But it really, it is. The narrator has a terrific sense of humor and it goes throughout the book. There are times in this book where I actually laughed out loud. So please don't let the premise make you feel like the plot is obscure or that you won't enjoy it because neither one of those things I think are true. I think we all who are novel readers love family sagas. Mm. And this is one with a very, very interesting family involved. Uh, this difficult child named Salem is the youngest child in her family. My wife always says that comparison is the death of joy. And I don't mean to compare it, but we were thinking about uh, talking or trying to talk to Abraham Vergesi, who wrote to a Covenant of Water, which has done very well. And this is a book in a similar type. And while I love the Vergesi book, and I, I, I hazard to say, I think this is better. Yeah. I, um, yeah. It's, it's, it's because it's, a, it's a book about a family's relationship. Well, it's not entirely about this, but a thematic in the book that's very important is the family's relationship with God. And again, don't let that, it's, this is funny. Again, I keep going back going, it's a funny book, but it, the way she explores that conflict, the way she explores the conflict that everybody, I think at some point goes through with faith, whether you embrace it, whether faith is not something that is something you adhere to, it is something at some point that all of us confront, I think. And she does a beautiful job, I think, of talking about the tug of war of faith, doubters and believers, 
and how she makes peace with that. She writes about this conflict. She's Ethiopian by birth who came to the United States. I think she was when she was 15 or 16. And as she will explain, she was she was a bullied child for reasons that she will explain. And she had a difficult childhood and therefore was considered to be by her family and because of her personal makeup uh, was considered to be a difficult child. And so, as she says, this this book is largely autobiographical, but very well done. Very, very well done. Absolutely. And so we would recommend it to you. And we had a lovely conversation with Noret Sabat, which we will play right now. Noret Sabat, it is a great pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I know this is a first novel. It is a wonderful story. But I'm curious, when you have no experience in novel writing, how do you educate yourself and how to go about writing a book? And then how did you do it? Reading, actually. Reading all kinds of authors and being astonished at what they accomplish and uh, gaining instruction from them. I read a, a bunch of political novels at once, once uh, The White Tiger by Ravina Dicka and Oscar Wilde by Junot Diaz. Before that, I was trying to get away from politics because it was hurting my feelings and it was making me sick. I mean, literally sick. I would make myself angry and sad all the time. And I decided when I decided to pursue writing, I told myself, I need to get away from politics. I just, I need to write about things that have nothing to do with politics. But that's not possible. Obviously, it's such a huge and important part of my development is something that I think about a lot. So if I were to write any truths about my life, I needed to write about politics. And these books offered instructions on how to write political novels that can also be very funny, entertaining, and deep and tragic. And so I realized the solution is not abandoning politics, but finding ways of uh, treating that subject. And as you wrote, were you thinking to yourself, gee, I'm doing pretty well here? Or, Or were you thinking... My goodness, how presumptuous is this? I've never written a novel. Is there a lot of hubris involved in my trying to do this? Oh, absolutely. At every stage, I would tell myself, people lied to me. They lied and told me I could write. I obviously don't know how to write. And I would, you know, I would complete a chapter and I'm like, what if I'm just a four chapter person? You know, what if I'm just a seven chapter person? (laughs) And at some point, I decided to start keeping a journal as I'm writing. And so I would write about my struggles. And later, when I struggle, I would come back and look at the past. I tell myself, oh, I was struggling four chapters ago, but I overcame it. So I was, without knowing it, creating this history of the precedent of my success. So I was generating my own pep talk as I went along. I hate to say it, but it helps to have been a bullied child. You know, whenever something is so challenging, that's actually when the best of you tends to come out. I don't know how other people react to their past as bullied people, but that's unfortunately how it is for me. So no, I absolutely had no idea what I was doing. It's really interesting that you talked about the importance of reading and joining the conversation of these other books, because in your acknowledgments, you talk about a class that you took called Reading as Writers. Yes. And we were fascinated by what that meant, what that meant to you, how you used that class in your writing, and also how it changed the way you read in your life. And does another writer read differently Mm. than Kate and I would read? Because we read as readers. Mm. You're reading as somebody who wants to write. So do you approach reading differently. I think after I took that class, definitely, yes. And it kind of made talking about books tricky with my other friends, with my non-literary friends, because I don't know 
you know, what do they talk about? Do they talk about the politics of it exclusively or character or is it about how the emotional aspect or do they talk about the craft aspect? We're just, you know, sitting around talking about basically what is this sentence doing and what is this paragraph yeah. doing? You know, mm. what is the transition doing and so on? When you approach the history of a difficult child, what came first for you? Was it the voice of Salon, your narrator? Was it wanting to tell the story about this particular moment in history in Ethiopia, which is a country that, as you say, our knowledge is not as deep as it should be. What was the onus behind writing this book? The origin of this book is actually a short story called You Don't Understand that I wrote sometime in 2014. It's a terrible story about uh, <laughs> a lesbian woman in her 30s who gets accidentally outed at a family gathering. It's very autobiographical. And it was written in response to something one of my brothers said to another sibling about me being a difficult woman who'd been raised badly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no yeah. pigeonholing there at all. Yeah, I was, I was, I was wounded by it, even though deep down I agreed with him. I am definitely difficult, but I'm like, I felt the need to defend myself and to defend the people who raised me. I'm like, they tried their best, but you know, I'm just messed up. So I write this story, but it was obviously a naive effort on my behalf because the question is so big. The question of how a person becomes who they are. And I was trying to answer it in this tiny piece. And everyone who read it said, this feels like a novel. And you have to give us a lot more of, you know, how this woman came to be. You gotta, you gotta go, you have to write the whole story. And so that's when the idea to write a novel kind of got in my head. And then one morning in the spring of 2015, I woke up around actually 4.30 without an alarm, just possessed by the voice of this bossy child who wanted to tell her story. And then that was based on a story that my sister had told me about the events surrounding my birth. So just like in the book, the book is very kind of semi-autobiographical. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked to a writer named Shelley Reed, who has written a book called Go as a River. And she had been teaching for years and years and years. And she quit teaching because she said, in my head was the story of this character. Victoria is her name. And she said, it just had to be told. And I had to write it. And so I quit teaching and I spent years writing my first novel and telling her story. Did you feel that way? Was Salam inside you? And this was a story that you really felt just had to be told. Absolutely. Salam was inside me and, and many other characters in the book were inside me. I think it, George Orwell, one of the essays, say something about how a person writes because of demonic possession or something, like something <laughs> is driving you. And uh, Salam was an extremely powerful voice. I was, I could just hear her. Like I could see her running around and like speaking in this very particular way. This is the story of the socialist revolution in Ethiopia. This is the story of the trauma and the general generational growth of a family. When you get the elevator pitch of this book, the first word that pops into your head isn't funny. However, this book is very funny. And I'm sort of interested, when you sat down, did you say, I'm going to make this funny? Was Salam's voice always funny? Or did it surprise you that so much humor came out of your own writing? I think it's the story of the birds that set the tone for everything. Because it was mm. so funny, even in real life. It's also what gave me the incentive to write the book. Whenever I think about, you know, the tragedies of my childhood, it's so heavy, you know, it's so compressed and I don't want to 
relive it. I have no reason to relive it. But when I wrote those chapters, they used to be one chapter. When I wrote that, I realized, wow, if I can make fun of my mother's cancer, anything is possible. I can, you know, <laughs> I can just write a funny novel. Salam narrates almost the entire book with some exceptions. And she seems all knowing at times. Mm-hmm. I mean, even talking about herself and her feelings. I've forgotten if it's while she's in utero, but certainly right after she's born. She's talking about her feelings. And so she's kind of all-knowing. And yet I found her very naive at times. Tell me about her and tell me why she's so difficult. She is like God-like at times, but also completely naive. Is in general a theme that I'm interested in, even in adults, you know, that the gap between what we think we know and what we actually know, I find it to be, you know, funny, but also very dangerous. But for the child, so the challenge was I wanted her to have some access to all these powers within her environment, you know, to God, to the surveillance state, to the institution of gossip, even some help from her future adult selves, because as I had said elsewhere, this is kind of when an adult narrates a story, we never think about how much of the credit for their wisdom belongs to the child. So much of the life-saving lessons that we learn in life come from the children, but the children are always in the background. So this is an attempt to kind of correct that fundamental unfairness by having the child tell her story. And then it's an experiment in the reverse, you know, instead of the adult telling a story with help from his, you know, her child self. This is the child telling the story was help from all the forces in her environment that care for her, but also oppress her. So that's why she is sometimes omniscient. She knows things, even though she kind of loses her omniscience as she grows and loses her innocence. That's working on this philosophy that her grandmother had. Children know what God knows because they're innocent, she says. But that's what that means as they lose their innocence, they lose their closeness to God and they become, you know, humans just like the rest of us mortals. Salam has a very complicated, conflicting relationship with God and God and Jesus are very important in her home with her family. They're devoted to it and she's very conflicted about that. I'm interested when you sat down to write the book, I guess this is a, are you a careful planner or do you write by the seat of your pants? But did you know how that conflict was going to turn out when you sat down to write? That conflict with God was actually based on true stories of my own childhood of refusing to pray and learn things and just asking questions that got me in trouble. And uh, there was a time when I was asked to choose between Jesus and my favorite secular song, which I put in the book. And I chose the song and I got in trouble. And I think it kind of made me lose faith in adults because like, why would you make me choose something if the only alternative is the wrong choice? And so I was uh, kind of building on my own early childhood atheism and also Mm. just the general anger and angst of loss and not understanding what's happening. And of course, that's exactly her difficulty as a lot of people in that environment never really blame God. But she's like, no, I'm going for the source of all this mess. (laughs) I am not blaming him. While she questions God, I mentioned that she narrates almost every chapter. But there is one chapter that Katie and I have talked an awful lot about, which is toward the end of the book. And it is a chapter written by God, which is, I think, a tremendously tricky thing for an author Mm. to do. So I'm, I'm really curious as to how you approach it. Is that Salam herself writing what she thinks God would write? 
or where was the origin of that chapter in your mind? That chapter actually came out of a kind of fear I was feeling. I do not have a religion and I refuse to worship God. I keep saying that to him. But I have embraced him as a kind of a very smart, invisible friend. And that chapter played a crucial role in me reaching that stage. Before that, it was just a lot of conflict. And, you know, religion was a source of so much trauma for me as a child and also as a queer person, as an adult. You know, God is used to do things to people like me. And my oldest brother was also gay and he endured a lot of suffering because of religion and so on. So my relationship with my family's religion and with God was very acrimonious. But actually, that chapter was not in the book when I sold the book in 2020. It came mm, later. Really? Yes. It came later, like, I, I, because when I was waiting for feedback from my editor, I had some time to step back and look back at the book more objectively, right? And so I kept thinking, the child is always going on and on and on about, about God, and he's not getting a chance to explain himself. This is not fair. And just in case he's out there, I don't want him to do anything to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I have to give him his own chapter to say his piece. And so the book, you know, from the beginning is teaching us the rules. There are certain things, even though Salam is, you know, leading the telling of the story, there are certain things that exist outside her scope that she cannot talk about, that she has wisely given the microphone to other characters to tell those parts of the stories, right? So this is not Salam writing God, but it's him talking to her. And the book tells us that the thing happened. And later she tells us, I didn't understand everything he was saying. I don't even Hmm. know if that's the real God. But there was a very ugly man who came and said all these things to me. How did you go about approaching the language? How did you go about applying the technique to put a voice to the unvoiceable? I honestly would describe that chapter similarly as the servants. It was kind of a possession. Mm -hmm. You know, I was overtaken by this voice. Once Mm -hmm. I wrote that first sentence, what is it? Look away, child. I'm so ugly and I'm stinky. Cover your nose. It just came out. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, my early religious training, I was essentially, I mean, brainwashed. So it kind of comes back, but in a very, so it's, it's a way of like, I, it's the me now having conversation with that early training and, you know, coming up with a place where I can kind of peacefully coexist with this idea of God without doing the things that, you know, my early religious training has wanted me to do, which is worship him. I tell him all the time, I am not going to worship you. I'm sorry, at least not for free. If you pay me, I'll consider it. But we can talk to each other. And it's just, it's good for me because he's one of the earliest characters in my life. But it was, you know, he was used in a wounding way. And I am, I feel like I'm on the other side now. We can have a peaceful relationship and we talk to each other once in a while. I actually would love to have been the fly on the wall when you went into your editor and you said, wait, I've got one more chapter. <laughs> and then the editor says, who's this written by? Oh, God, that's no big deal. We'll just squeeze it in at the end. So it leads to the question in your mind, is this primarily a political novel or a religious novel or just a family story? A family story, definitely. It's a family story that could not have been told without a depiction of those big contexts within which they were existing. So I always want to tell people, especially I I just want to say like when people from quote unquote exotic places, like where I come from, write 
you know, people feel a certain entitlement to an education on the history and politics of that country. And I'm willing to give that, but I just want people to read the book as a family story. You're Ethiopian by birth. Yes. Yet you're a longtime U.S. resident. Yes. So you're a citizen of two very different societies. Is this entirely a product of your Ethiopian upbringing where the novel occurs, or is there an overlay of American values and your experience in it? Definitely. I think for me, uh, as someone who grew up in, in that particular family, it would not have been possible to just be Ethiopian because America is so everywhere, right? I mean, we listen to the voice of America all the time. And just like Salam in the book, I grew up fantasizing about America. And when I grow up, I'm going to go to America. I'm going to go to America. Why? Nobody knows. It's just there <laughs> in my mind. So <laughs> even even when I was in Ethiopia, America was definitely part of me. And coming to America was really critical to being able to look back at my life in Ethiopia mm. in an objective, more expansive way. Because when you're a child, you're kind of in some ways, especially if they're there's a lot of tragedy happening around you. Your life is very compressed and you're in a survival mode. So being removed from that environment is really essential to being able to see things more clearly. Salam is such a strong narrator throughout the book, but occasionally you have chapters from other narrators. And I'm interested to know, when did you feel like I have to have this here? Like, how did you know that that was going to be an important pivot and you needed to hand the perspective over to somebody else for just a chapter or two before you could get back to your main voice? Yeah, I love the women of the town. Yeah. They're sort of the Greek, Greek chorus. chorus. There are Greek chorus gossiping yeah. about everybody. And I love them. And I thought, gee, they have to have their own chapter. And lo and behold, they do. Yeah. It's a nice touch. But I, Kate's question is, Jermaine, how, when did you decide you needed to inject another voice. When I was going to the University of Minnesota and I turned in some of the early chapters as part of my thesis to my professor, the best kinds of feedback always is the one that catches you when you're trying to cheat. Mm. I was overloading the child's voice with so much heavy history and I knew it. I knew her voice was not, it was collapsing under all that weight, mm. but I turned it in anyway. And my professor, one of my co-advisors, Julie Schumacher, said, the child's voice, it disappears whenever she, you know, she's trying to tell all this uh, history. You got to do something about that. And I'm like, wow, okay, you caught me. You got me there. And so <laughs> I was just, you noticed that, did you? Yeah. And, and I was just letting that idea brew in my mind. And then months later, I went to that cabin to get some work done. And then the servants just came bursting through and they took care of all that, a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, there was specifically one story in there that the child could not have been able to tell without kind of even mentally collapsing. It's something that has to do with her father that she cannot say, that she cannot tell, that someone else had to, you know, do. And uh, so after servants, I realized, well, I could just, you know, that's one way of actually getting past writer's block. Whenever something refuses to come out, maybe mm. consider mm. a different POV. And uh, mm. that was really great help for me. And finally, for me, I love the description. They're usually so antiseptic, the descriptions about authors that are in the back of a book. But in yours, it says, first of all, it lists all your accomplishments and all the awards and the various degrees you have. But then it says, in a previous life, she was a waitress, yes. a nanny. Uh -huh. An occasional shoe shiner, a propagandist, and a terrible gospel singer. When you were doing all of those things, did you ever think you'd be able to add and a successful novelist? 
No, I did not. And I think all those things were actually evidence of my unemployability. Like I couldn't, you know, I didn't have something to focus on and do. So I was just jumping around. Sometimes I feel if there is a God, he was obviously trying to lead me here. So he made me unemployable. But no, I actually, I told I did not have enough life experiences to write about. So after college, I was trying to join the Navy. Really? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I don't have a way to for that one. So, so again, it's my politics now, but I was like, you know, I don't have enough experience. I want to go and, you know, learn things and maybe yeah. even make muscles and learn how to fire guns. And I'm scared of guns and war. So I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> so Ensign Sabat, Sailor Third Class Sabat, I don't know what rank you have achieved, but it's great to talk to you. And good fun, and it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. The History thank you, thank of a you. Difficult Child. Not a difficult read at all. Mm-mm. Very, very nice to read. All the best. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So, some rapid-fire questions for Mirad Sabat. Were you a difficult child? I, I, I think the context matters. In that context, yes, I was very difficult. I was disobedient. A lot. Hmm. I went to school late almost every day of my life, and I got whipped. I didn't care. I slept in. And I interrupted older men when they're debating each other, politics or whatever, I would say. But you said this yesterday. You said this last week. You're contradicting yourself just to win a debate. I don't know how they did not kill me, but yeah, I was just, I got in trouble all the time. They would tell me, you're a child, get away from here, stop doing this. But I would do it over and over and over. And I played soccer a lot, which was not a girl's sport. I didn't spend enough time in the kitchen. So I was often told, you will never find a husband, which is hilarious because I'm a lesbian. So yeah, I was was very difficult. Most influential book in your life? Uh, It is the Bible. Unfortunately, it's it's the thing that leaps out of me whenever something happens, a scripture. I don't even remember the exact number, but the thought just springs up. And it's also, I think, an early training storytelling because it was a mm. book that I was made to read. Uh, fiction was actually kind of not encouraged in my household because it was full of sinful ideas. I did manage to read some hiding or whenever I went on vacation, stayed with my cousin. But uh, in my house, it was not liked. So the Bible was my... Uh, my number one book. So when Salam in the book is writing letters to dear future friend, who's she writing? I don't think she knows. It's just an obsession because of the writing a letter becomes the kind of habit. It started with her brothers, just especially one brother nagging her to learn how to write letters because it's important. It's, it's how you write to, you know, someone who's not here. And over time, because the town is so small and there's not so many sources of uh, entertainment. She just begins writing to some imaginary friend. It's This is true of my real... Well, I didn't actually write to imaginary friends, but I used to get 
cut out addresses of just random organizations out of something, a magazine that made it to town, and I would just send them a letter. So <laughs> the day this book came out on a scale of one to 10, how nervous were you? And what did you do on that day? I wanted to celebrate in a way that's organic to me. So I ordered myself a nice, you know, pajama set. I told myself I'm going to wear this pajama all day and I'm going to eat breakfast food for all my meals. <laughs> but I was so restless. I couldn't even sit still in the house. I went, I ended up, you know, walking out of the house. And I mean, I did eat breakfast twice, but I never actually managed to get into those pajamas. I was just, <laughs> I went to the bookstore to see if my book is on display. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly just cannot believe this is happening. I feel like an infiltrator. I have infiltrated the New York publishing world. Author that you will read simply because they wrote it. Natalia Ginnisberg, but she's not with us anymore. I probably have read her works the most. I just, I love her. She's my eternal queen. I can't wait to finish reading everything she ever wrote. If our listeners were going to pick her up, what's the first book they should start with? Absolutely. Family Lexicon, probably her, her most famous book. Okay. It's a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I laugh a lot and someone somewhere called it boring and it made me feel like I do not belong here on earth, but I'm like, I remember, nope, Natalia Ginsburg is admired by so many people. <laughs> years and years ago, an actress named Carol Kane got nominated for an Academy Award as supporting actress. And they asked her what it meant to her. And she said, it means that I can spend my life now simply knowing I can act. Does this novel mean to you, yes, I can do this for the rest of my life? Absolutely, yes. But I have to say the thing that I'm looking most forward to is actually reading. If I could right now, what I would do is just go to some kind of convent and just read for about three years <laughs> nonstop. And what would you take with you? My reading list is just, it's impossible to describe, but I would definitely read all the works of Natalia Ginsburg, all the works of Jamaica K. Cage. Yeah, those are the two women that I'm obsessed with right now, but uh, I read everything, honestly. I respect that uh, people look for themselves in, in, in books, but I uh, can read a book from any country about anything, and as long as it moves me, it captures me. Our conversation with Mirat Subat. A couple of things stay with me from this conversation. First of all, I want to take a reading as writer's class. I just think that sounds amazing. And it reminds me, you know, I went to film school and a lot of you listeners at home are probably saying, well, a lot of good it did you. You can see how much I'm applying that education. But anyway, I went to film school and it changes the way you watch movies. In some ways, it's like pulling the curtain back and getting a behind the scenes and it changes the way you experience that. And I, I'm sort of fascinated by the name of that class and that concept. And then the other thing that I love that Mirat talked about, which I just, I love the idea of more writers doing this. I love the idea of keeping a writer's diary so that you, not necessarily because you'll always rely on the same s solutions to get yourself out of a funk, but because just remind yourself, oh, hey, I was in a funk and I was thoroughly blocked. And you know what? Here I am. And I got to the other side of that. I bet I can get to the other side of it again. I thought that was a terrific idea. So many writers have told us that there come times as they write novels that they think they've lost it. Mm -hmm. I remember J. Ryan Straddle saying to us that, oh, yeah, it happens to be all the time. <laughs> and then I go back and I reread what I've written. And I think, oh, okay, maybe it's okay. And then you perfect it or uh, revise it and it comes out fine. And his novels prove that. But a lot of writers have said that, that they feel 
that they've lost it. I remember even mm-hmm. Harlan Coben, who is so prolific mm-hmm. and has written so many terrific novels, said that he feels that way. So I think you're right. Keeping a journal about her writing, in other words, writing about her writing, is a very productive, can be a very productive thing to do. And also, we talked about this, that she wrote this chapter, that God wrote the chapter. And it's a very, I think, a very, very risky thing to do, but I think she pulls it off very well. But I, like you, was sort of curious that that chapter wasn't written in the first draft of the book. Yeah, I, I really can't imagine what went through the publisher's mind when she came, when the publisher said, oh, oh, you want to add a chapter? I, I see, I see. Oh, it's a different narrator, is it? It's a different narrator. All the narrators got, is it? No problem. We'll just squeeze that in, uh, uh, no problem at all. I mean, it is, I mean, when you first see the title of the chapter, I mean, my first reaction was, whoa, this is going to be different. I wonder if she can do this. Just to give you a quote of the kind of voice that she imagines from God, one quote from that chapter, you must understand this, my little one, love and risk of heart-shattering loss go together. The ultimate purpose of life is love. Death is the frame of love and its unpredictability the wall upon which the whole frame hangs. If death did not exist, love would be cheapened. It would become something you do not have to take seriously until you turn a thousand years old or never. Very well done. Incredibly ambitious, but just, I don't know. Again, I don't know how she pulled it off, but at the end I thought, oh, that was beautiful. And again, that's a risky thing to do. Well, Salam not only is dealing with the politics of Ethiopia, with which she disagrees, but she's also dealing with her family's insistence that she believe in God. And her relationship with God goes back and forth through the book, and she struggles with it. One of the reasons she struggles with it so much is this is not a country that's like, oh, you you, you want to worship a Christian? Great, fantastic. I mean, her family is persecuted for their beliefs, and it really tests her family. And I think sometimes she wishes her family could just be a family without having to fight the fight of religion. And that is part of the struggle of the book. And it's really beautiful how she does it. The book again, The History of a Difficult Child, the author Maret Sibat, and we enjoyed talking to her. A reminder of the people who make this podcast possible, and then a final thought from Maret. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Student loans are a scam. Abolish them. That's the biggest wisdom. Mm-hmm.